You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. All right, turn in your copy of God's Word to John 14. John 14 is where we return today. We'll take actually the first 14 verses as we uh, return to our study in John's Gospel, and particularly to this middle portion that uh, uh, is commonly known as the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus is preparing His uh, disciples for His departure. He is uh, about to uh, go to the cross and rise again, but uh, in the moments before, um, he is preparing his disciples for what they can expect. And this news of his departure is actually hanging over uh, his disciples like a a dark cloud uh, that has caused trouble in their heart and in their Mind. A trouble may be looming over them in much the same way that uh, trouble looms over our mind as news of uh, yet more war breaking out in Israel. And maybe there's things happening in your own life, news or conversations and things that are looming. Doctor's appointments or the results from tests that uh, you are waiting to come back and something in your gut is just telling you that this may not be so good. Maybe it's a conversation looming this week. Conversation at work or with a student or a teacher or with a, a child or your parents or your spouse. And the, 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 as, as you await the conversation, anxiety builds in your heart and you can't sleep even just thinking about it. And it's the same kind of trouble or turmoil that hangs over this final meal that Jesus is having with his disciples that has them stirred up. And so hopefully you found John 14 in your Bible. I want to read it for us and you follow along so you can see the words and the story unfold. And as I read it, let's try to understand the turmoil that they are in. Follow along with me. This is John 14, 1 through 14. It says this, let not your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. 
Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this is God's word for God's people. Continuing on in this, uh, you know, in the conversation here that Jesus is having with his disciples, and he is uh, preparing them, as I've said, and thus us for what to expect in a life of following Jesus. And so each of these uh, uh, scenes in the upper room discourse leave us with uh, some expectations about what life is to look like. And so here is what the central uh, expectation in this section of Scripture really is. Write this down. It's in your notes and here on the screen for us. uh, We can expect future hope and present help for your troubled heart. Or let me say it this, this way. Expect future hope and present help for your troubled heart. And church, as we even say, okay, here is the central expectation. Why are the disciples uh, feeling this way? Why would Jesus uh, begin uh, with this, this very straightforward and simple command to let not your hearts be troubled? Or just think back, maybe you're new and you're just joining us or, you know, it's been a couple weeks. We took a break last week. And so now uh, as we think about like, well, why is Jesus uh, saying this? What is the immediate context uh, that has just happened around the dinner table prior to Jesus uh, saying these things to Thomas and to Philip? Well, as we just look at what's already happened here, uh, why are they troubled? What's, What's happening? Well, Jesus, remember, washed the disciples' feet. And this really unsettled all of the social protocols of that day. Now they're, they're, they're angsty because uh, the, the, the primary, the leader, has just taken the lowest place and, and really kind of upset all the social norms of the day, just kind of getting them uh, unsettled around dinner. But it goes from there, not only unsettling them, to then Jesus uh, identifying and calling out his betrayal, Right? Somebody will betray him. And so now the disciples are all uh, introspective and self-assessing. I wonder, is this me? Am I going to do it? Now Judas is leaving and what is happening? To then Jesus dropping the bomb of his departure. Or he is about to leave and go. And now they're anxious about being leaderless. The man whom they've followed, who they've given their whole life for the last three years, is now saying he will no longer be with them. And anxiety is building in the disciples. And then in the verses that just end chapter 13, right before Jesus says this, is Jesus calling out Peter for his denial. As Peter makes a bold claim of standing in Jesus' place, of laying his own life down, Oh, Jesus calls him right out and, and, and says, no, you're actually going to deny me before uh, the morning comes, before the sunrise, you will deny me. And now everything is just awkward. And so they're unsettled and to, to, to then uh, being introspective and self-assessing and, and, and then anxious about his leaving. And now everything is awkward as Jesus and, and Peter uh, have had this, uh, kind of, uh, this exchange here. And all this is in the opening moments of dinner, right? How's this for a dinner conversation, right? It's, it's awkward. How do you pick up on a conversation after moments like this, right? 
I had a similar, though much lesser awkward experience. This is last week. I took Aaron's car in for inspection, and you know how you drive in, and you try not to, you know, take your tires down in the the pit that's in there, and you know, drive in, and the guy's like right here talking about it, and and, uh, and as he is uh, uh, going through some things, he uh, takes that opportunity to, you know, mouth off to his supervisor, who then comes over and is, uh, you know, the supervisor um, corrects him, and, and then also begins to uh, have this conversation about him being out of dress code, which he clearly was, as you look at all the other employees, and all this is happening, like, right here. <laughs> you know, to where I was just, like, poke them. It's just kind of awkward as this guy's getting, you know, chewing and there. And let's just say it was a pretty colorful conversation as well. And I just awkwardly hear, how do you pick up the conversation? Uh, that's just like, how about that inspection? Now, right? um, and, uh, you know, it was interesting. He's like, the guy said, this is totally, he's like, what is this, a church with a dress code? He's like, let me tell you about our church without a dress code. <laughs> <laughs> it was just one of those awkward moments, right? And for the disciples, you can kind of see the trouble. The water is churning in the conversations, right, in the, in the upper room. And that's where Jesus really accurately, but yet gently, gives them this command that drives the whole section that we just read. Let not your hearts be troubled. And it is an appropriate word, as you just think of the, the, the context. And, and we've actually encountered this word multiple times uh, throughout John's gospel. Just in chapter 13, verse 21, when Jesus calls out Judas for betraying, we're told that Jesus is troubled. His own soul is in turmoil over this. He's, uh, he's, his soul's troubled back in chapter 11, verse 33, as he meets up with Lazarus' sisters, and they are grieving because Lazarus has died. Jesus is, is, is troubled. The word is also used in, in chapter 5, verse 7, as the lame man who is waiting at the waters to be stirred up so he can find his healing, giving us a great word picture for what often happens in our heart and mind as things loom. There are many things in life that stir us up, don't they? Circumstances in your life, and Jesus knows this. Jesus felt it himself. Where where we can you know make the uh, the 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 application here that the feeling of turmoil the feelings of trouble it is in and of itself are not sinful. It's what we do with it that determines whether or not we are uh, that we are uh, being controlled by or are controlling our emotions. Jesus himself feels this, but what he does here for the disciples is commands them out of it, but lovingly anchors their boats in the churning waters of their heart with the truth, with solid expectations in a future hope and a present help, and just telling them to let not their hearts, like, don't, don't be troubled in your heart. He is not scolding them, but he is giving them solid ground upon which to base their hope. And he points them to the future first. Did you see this? Write this down here. When my heart is troubled, I must, here's the first thing, I must look forward to a future with Christ. Everything's awkward. They're all unsettled. They're self-reflective and introspective and and, and wondering about uh, what's going to happen now. And he settles their troubled heart by pointing them to a future with himself. This is that that, that first cure, is, is the certainty of future. 
and has been the consistent uh, theme, the consistent command that Jesus has called his followers to over and over. He calls us to believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's the whole purpose of John's gospel, right? He told us that in John 20. We've, we've, we've uh, reiterated this over and over and over. John tells us exactly why he includes what he includes in, uh, in this gospel. John 20, verse 31, These things I have written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he brings us back to this. Believe in God. Believe also uh, in, in, in me. And so, but, but what is it that we're to believe about then? Right? What does he say? We're to believe that we have a future with him, with the Father, with the Son in heaven. And he uses in these verses here the imagery of a house with many rooms. Using the imagery of of heaven as a house with many rooms where Jesus has gone on ahead of us to prepare a room, a place uh, for us. And a room that really defies all of our, uh, I think, our our, our greatest imaginations and anticipations about about this. And you've read songs and heard or sung songs or read things about all this. and, And yet I think it's going to blow our minds as to what this will actually be like. But Jesus, in an act of hospitality and kindness and something to look forward, he's like, I'm going ahead and I will come back for you. I go to prepare a room for you. And this is something I think we can all relate to as you have guests over to your house, right? What do you do in preparation for visitors coming to your house or somebody who's coming to live or when you have a child who's coming uh, into your home? You prepare a room. You exercise hospitality. We did this in uh, our home even this last week as Aaron's uh, sister Autumn came to visit. Uh, We love when Tia comes. She brings lots of fun, lots of joy, uh, lots of adventure uh, with her. And in uh, preparation, you know, we got the mountain room, which is what we call our guest room, all ready and put clean sheets and towels. And maybe there's even a chocolate on the pillow. I don't know, did we do that this time for her? Sometimes we do that. Uh, we cleaned the bathrooms. We got everything ready in preparation for her arrival. And yet, church here, the room that awaits us with the Lord pales in comparison. And, and Jesus is using this, and even in not in the description of it, even in the unknown, in the eager anticipation that we have for heaven, is what is, is meant to really weigh down the uncertainty that looms in the situations that trouble us. Yes, there are unknowns in life. We don't necessarily know what is going to happen in this conversation, in our class, in, the, in, in our job, with our family, in this relationship. And Jesus is bringing us to the certainty of what awaits us, even in the midst of the unknowns. And yet all of that pales in comparison. But in telling his disciples this, he also hits them with, with really a heart-penetrating thought, a question that we all have to wrestle with in verse 2, where he says, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And so the heart question is that we all have to wrestle with is in these moments of uncertainty and trouble, is Jesus trustworthy? Can I take Jesus at his word? When I don't know what is going to come, when, the, when life is weighing me down or has me stirred up, can we take Jesus at his word, especially in times of trouble? Is he trustworthy when he says he is coming back for us? 
And he really leans into this to get the disciples to wrestle with this. And us this morning, as he says in verse 4, you know the way to where I'm going. You know it. You've seen it all along the way. You've seen how I've proven myself. You've seen uh, how, how, how trustworthy I am. And yet, I, I love it here because I think Thomas puts into words what maybe all of us would be thinking in this moment. When Jesus is calling us to be, to be trustworthy, we gotta, you have to love Thomas, right? We first learned about him back in chapter 11 during the raising of Lazarus where he's like, hey, let's go see this for ourselves, right? And what, what is Thomas famous for? After Jesus uh, rises again, he misses out on the appearance, and wh- what do we know Thomas as? Doubting Thomas, right? As I, I have to see it, right? I need, I, need, I, need, I, I need some tangible evidence here. He's famous for his doubts. He's, he's he, even here. He's still thinking literally, right? Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? You're leaving us, and you haven't told us uh, where you are going. Jesus, you know, isn't just thinking literally, even though he, he's also speaking spiritually, not in like riddles. But he's leaving to go be with the Father. And it's an answer to Thomas's question here that we get this well-known saying of Jesus in verse 6. How many of you have memorized John 14, 6? Or somewhere along the way, maybe through children's ministry, maybe through freedom group or some other, maybe you've just taken it in by osmosis because it's a very familiar verse that, where Jesus said to them, what does he say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's right. It's very common, uh, a very well-known uh, uh, verse here. And just like in, in how he's answering this, like note the definite article, right? Just take some uh, thoughts in here. It's, he's not an indefinite article. Some of you are like, what in the world? It's, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life, or the way, the truth. The, what's the right pronunciation there? Anybody know? He's, but he, what he's not saying is, I am a way. I am a truth. I am one amongst many ways of life. No, he uses a definite article, and you know, the exclusivity of his claim. No one, zero exceptions, no one comes to the Father except through or by me. There are many ways that people, many connections that people learn of Christ, primarily through God's Word, but as through conversations or songs or radio or uh, through, through tracks or, you know, the... Uh, the options are really limitless that people hear of the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners. And yet there is only one way to get to the Father, one way into the heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way in through your own works, through anybody else, but it is only through Christ. But note also the context of this verse. Is Jesus speaking here and rebuking the Pharisees who have hardened their hearts in unbelief? Is Jesus uh, speaking to a crowd of seekers who are wondering what is true or wondering what is? No, who is he speaking to? His disciples who are what? Troubled. Who are troubled. And often here, church, here's the thing. Often we use this verse in our evangelism, and rightly so, Rightly so. Like there's, you know, there, there maybe is no clearer verse of the exclusivity of Jesus uh, in this uh, in this verse, and and I think it is rightly so because we, we can maybe even make the conclusion here that this is the moment that Thomas comes to faith. 
This is his regenerative moment. As he asks the question, and, and Jesus, you know, like in verse 7, says, if you'd known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And maybe, I don't want to be dogmatic about that, but there seems to be a case where maybe this is the moment where Thomas has now finally come to faith. After years of following Jesus, all this, and now here he is. And so I think it is good for us to, to, to use this in our evangelism, in our apologetics. And if you're questioning this this morning of who Jesus is, how do I get to heaven, settle this right now in your life. The answer for your future the cure for your troubled heart, wherever it is, uh, whatever is, is uh, bothering you now, if you're feeling the weight of your sin, Christ is the answer. That by repenting of your sin, repenting of living your, your life on your own, and trusting that Christ is trustworthy, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, that He is the only way to the Father, you then will be saved. But make the connection with me, church. Don't miss the context here and how Jesus wields this truth. It is a cure for troubled hearts of his disciples. It is a gospel anchor for us. For Jesus not only knows the way, he is the way into the future as setting the course for our lostness and how to live faithfully in this life. He not only knows the truth, but he is the truth into the future, establishing what is true in our confusion, giving us the way forward. He not only knows what makes for a great life, but he is the life into the future, securing our eternity both now and forever. So that no matter what troubles you today, church, to whom do we turn to? To Jesus. To Jesus who stirs up, or who rather who settles the stirred up waters of our heart as we understand that the trouble that you may be facing has an expiration date. That the trouble you may be facing this morning, there are answers. When it, does, when it seems like there's no way forward, there is a way forward. That even in our trouble, there is a silver lining because heaven and a room there for those who have come to Christ await us. There is a silver lining here. There is, if you are in Christ today, there is no ultimate bad ending or, uh, or, or final outcome for the believer. Everything we know culminates in eternity with him. Even if this is the source or the cause of our death, the trouble that we're in now, what awaits us who trust in Christ? Heaven, future with him. It's what awaits. And can we take Jesus at his word in this? I think so. He's promised to come back for us. He's promised a room for us. And never once, don't this church, never once, has Jesus ever failed to fulfill his promises to his people? Need proof in that? What did Jesus promise in Matthew 16? 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus said that. He's building his church. The fact that you and me are here gathered as God's people and redemption is six years old like we celebrated last week and, 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 and it is thriving. Jesus has built this church. He has kept his word and we're just one of thousands of examples across the globe and throughout human history. He is trustworthy. We can promise to we can take him at his word that he will fulfill his promise in our troubles as we look forward to our future with him even now. And yet I get it. It's like, okay, that's great, right? 
I look forward to the future, but today still is hard. Ever been in those moments? What about right now? And I think Philip gets this. I think Philip gets it, and honestly, the answer is really the same, but that's where uh, Jesus, in speaking to Philip, starting in verse 8, where in our troubled hearts, the next cure is to look to Christ for help right now. Very simple. We look forward to a future with him, but the second cure, we must look to Christ for help right now. Now, Philip, we met him in chapter 1, one of the first disciples. He and Nathaniel there, uh, Jesus calls him. And he really makes a similar request in verse 8 that, that reminds us, I think, of what Moses asked of God back in Exodus. Remember when Moses says, God, show us your glory. He's leading the people. Things are hard, all that. They've just uh, uh, they failed. He's on the mountain, and Jesus or Moses asks the Lord, show us your glory. And God's like, well, I can't. I, you, nobody can see me and live, and so yet I will give you a glimpse You can look from the rear here, but you can't see me. And in many ways, Philip is asking the same thing in verse 8. Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And maybe you've asked God for something similar in your trouble. God, just just show me a sign. Show me a glimpse of yourself, and I will will believe. Show me, uh, give me a sign. Show me yourself, and I will uh, walk faithfully in this. For we want proof that he's actually here, right? I think in the, you know, in even requesting that, it's just like we want to know with certainty that God is with us in it. Because if God is alongside us, then, then, then we're good, right? Then we can be confident. Then we can walk through anything. And I love just Jesus is just patiently reiterating what he has said consistently throughout his uh, three years with his disciples. Throughout his three years of teaching ministry, he's not just, uh, you know, getting on uh, Philip's case here. He's like, how, how long have I been here and you still haven't learned this lesson? No, don't hear that teacher or your parents' voice in Jesus. No, he's just patiently reiterating what he has said consistently, that, that I and the Father are one. He's just reminding Philip of what he has already taught, what Philip already knows to be true, that if you see me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. If you uh, have experienced my works, you've seen the Father's works. My authority comes from him. Why? Because the Father is in me and I am in him. And if you can't just take my word for it, then examine the works, the evidence, the things that I've done for yourself and come to your own conclusions. And whenever we do that, church, what is the conclusion? Who else could do what Jesus did but God himself? Who else could say the things that Jesus said with authority but God himself? Therefore, what what must we conclude? Jesus is God. And this was scandalous to the Pharisees, right? Scandalous to those who don't believe. Scandalous any who've hardened their hearts, and apparently it was also forgotten by Philip. And we can cut him some slack, can't we? All right? Well, it's the context. Philip's got all the feels right now, right? He's got all the things churning about in him, and we too, we too, forget what we know to be true so often in our own trouble, don't we? As our head dips below the metaphorical waves as they are churning about us and we can't see the horizon, we can't see shore, we can't see help in the moment as we dip down and what do we do? We forget his nearness. 
we forget his goodness. We forget his sovereignty. Like, God, just show me here. And Jesus is like, I've shown you your whole life. Jesus doesn't just bludgeon Philip for his request and all this, does he? He doesn't just, like, uh, beat him up for his forgetfulness. No, he just patiently and gently reminds him of the truth again, but then takes it to another level in verses 12 through 14, right? He promises another level of help that really is just astounding. A, a, a purpose in the trouble, a purpose in, the, in, in what we are going in, in, in verse 12. In the midst of all of the trouble, Jesus is like, truly, truly, right? And when Jesus says that, what's that what's, what's, what should go off in our own minds, right? Like the alarms. Jesus is saying, listen up here. Listen up. This is important. I have something important to say in your trouble. Here is your help for right now. Do you believe in me? Jesus is speaking this. Don't believe in me. But if you believe in Christ, Jesus says, then whoever does, whoever believes, will do the same works that I do and will have yet greater an extent and will also have my ear. He's saying, in your trouble, in your anxiety, in your turmoil, though I am leaving you physically, disciples, I will continue my work through you and be available to you every step of the way. What a promise in this, right? I'm about to leave in your trouble. I won't be there physically next to you. But as you continue to live for my glory, I will be there. I, will listen. I, I am accessible to you at every moment. And I realize maybe as you've even read these verses here, maybe you've heard other things taught, or maybe there's just some confusion or questions about, like, well, what is he getting at here? Particularly, like, what, well, what does he mean that greater works than these will he do? Like, okay, I believe in, in, in Jesus. Is, is, like, is he, like, bestowing on every uh, Christian, like, superhero powers that they're, like, we're the new Marvel characters? Well, even as we think about the greater works, Matt Carter, he's a pastor, and he's written a helpful commentary. He just has this quote. He says, nothing could be done that is more spectacular than what Jesus did. Nothing could be done that is more spectacular than what Jesus did. And I, I agree with that. I was like, yeah, amen, right? Because what is more spectacular than defeating death and rising from the dead? What's more spectacular than walking on water, of feeding thousands, of turning water into wine, and all the other works that Jesus did, and all the other things that, that, that Jesus taught, right? What, what is more spectacular than that? As you just examine human history, there are many men have uh, created or have engineered extraordinary machines. Many women throughout human history have, have accomplished extraordinary feats. But only God can create out of nothing. Only God can speak something into existence. Only Jesus could die and rise again to defeat sin and death to save his beloved. What is more spectacular? What is greater than that? And so what he's getting at here, what he's saying is that there is a purpose in your trouble. As you live on mission, as you live doing the works that Jesus did, as you live a life for the glory of God, carrying the gospel forward, God is doing a greater work in and through and out from you for the spread of the gospel in your life and often through means like persecution, but always through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit 
See, what he's getting at here is, see, Jesus was limited in the extent of his work when he took on human flesh and came to, uh, to Israel. As he, he was just there limited to the people that were right in front of him. It was, it, it was limited in location, but his disciples would do a greater work as they would scatter around the globe, taking the message of the good news to every ethnicity and to every language throughout the ages, and it has not stopped. And what is just so incredible and through God's sovereign work and his purposes that even as the disciples there were being persecuted as the gospel was growing or others were coming in uh, who spoke other languages as we learn in Acts and as they would then scatter out from there then taking the good news of Jesus through means of the marketplace or through persecution as governments came, became hostile to the message and sent them out with the gospel. Now they are taking the good news and more and more communities of people are following Following Jesus. And the crazy part is, is that you and I, redemption, we are here because of the greater work of the gospel going forward from this point. We, we would never know. Like, with this, it, it, it is so, like, this is the greater work. The fact that we've heard about Jesus, and here we are in central Texas gathered in his name. But what else here? You know, as we think about the greater works, what about the Promise in verses 13 and 14, right? Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. The Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, right? That sounds awesome. Free access to the divine bank account, right? Jesus, the, the, the most spectacular genie in a bottle. We're going to ask him anything, and we have it, right? Pray for the moon, tack on in Jesus' name, or if you want to be real spiritual, in Jesus' generous and grace, gracious name, amen, and it's ours, right? Is that what he's saying? It'd be kind of nice, right? Or so we think. And yet Jesus has something greater in mind in it as well. It's a promise that even in the midst of our trouble, that as we desire for and pray for God to be glorified in our life, as we desire to live those vertical lives, especially in our times of trouble, that's a prayer that God will always answer for you. God, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this, uh, but, I, but I want you to be glorified. God, I don't know the way forward in this, uh, in this relationship. I don't know what is true in this moment, but I want you to be glorified in it. Then you can be confident that he will answer that kind of prayer. He will always, always do it. He will always act out of his goodness for his glory, no matter what. See, I remember conversation I had with a friend as about 12 years ago now as we were on the cusp of Malachi being born. We we're just days out and, and, uh, and he had asked, uh, you know, how I was doing, if I was nervous or, uh, you know, just anxious about uh, uh, Malachi's uh, uh, birth. And, um, and he had walked with us, you know, a year and a half earlier as we lost our firstborn daughter, Gwendolyn. And then in the interim, he had also lost his dad and tragic accident and so we had walked through these things and now we're on the cusp of this and he asked like are, how, how are you doing are you uh, are, are you nervous are you scared and and uh, you know just remember in that that moment when he was asking me that I just really like responded really without thinking he's like I don't know what April 20th that was the day Malachi's birth was scheduled for I don't know how everything is going to turn out but these two things I am confident of is that no matter what God will be good and he will be glorified uh, through it 
And, and I don't say that to say you'd be like, wow, Blair, you have a strong faith. You're like, that's the, the uh, I don't have a stronger faith than you or anybody else. That, that's not what it is about. Our faith really is built on the strength that Christ gives. That didn't come from me. My heart was troubled. I was anxious. I was nervous. I didn't, you know, know. But I had seen the Lord do an incredible work. I had seen the Lord do uh, prove himself time and time again good and faithful and be glorified with the spreading of the gospel through hard times, through good times, where he was the one who gave help in the moment, and he gave it through the help of his Holy Spirit. Even in that moment, as I talked to uh, my friend Carlos, and we walked this journey together. But see, here's, that, that comes from, just to, from taking Christ at his word of seeing what he's telling the disciples here in the midst of his trouble and saying, okay, God, uh, like I want you to be glorified in this. I know that you are good even when I can't see it. And so, I, you know, a room this size, there's a variety of things. And maybe are troubling you this morning. Things that have already been mentioned, maybe things that, I, that, that we haven't covered, relational trouble. Work trouble, school trouble, things with kids, things with parents, things with, between your spouse, financial things that weigh us down, the uncertainty of the future, all the unknowns and what ifs. And it's to these moments that Jesus speaks these words as a cure for our troubled hearts reminding us to look to him, to look to our future, to the silver lining, and telling us to look to the help that he provides right now as we see him be glorified, as he gives us the power, as he's present with us in a way that he could not be when he was physically on earth, a help that now comes through the help of the Holy Spirit, who we'll get to next week.